Welcome back to the program. Most of us over a certain age remember the day when we got on a transcontinental or international flight and it was glamorous. When we dressed to travel. When strong pilots and beautiful stewardesses frame the wonders of travel. When it imbued us with a sense of freedom and possibility. How many women were inspired by the Charlie Girl commercial to believe that having it all was the holy grail? And during the Depression and war years, when the glamour of Joan Crawford inspired a generation to believe in social mobility. And of course, as we just re-experienced, the glamour of the Kennedys and Camelot frozen in time in our collective consciousness. All are examples of the power of glamour to shape society, define the culture, and shape and motivate each of us. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Virginia Postrel. She's a columnist for Bloomberg View. She's been a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. She's the former editor of Reason Magazine and the author of the two powerful books, The Substance of Style and The Future and Its Enemies. It is my pleasure to welcome Virginia Postrel back to this program to talk about the power of glamour, longing in the art of visual persuasion, Virginia Postrel, thanks so much for being with us. It's great to be with you. Great to have you here. One of the things you talk about early on is glamour as a form of communication, like humor in some respects. Talk a little about that. Yeah, that's a great. Thanks for asking about that, because that's one of the the big aha moments I had when I was writing the book. The first challenge when you embark on trying to understand glamour is trying to figure out what exactly it is. And people often talk about it as if it were a style of shiny furniture or satin dresses or a particular way of of dressing um, or art deco. Those are the kinds of things we associate with glamour. But when you start to think about glamour, you realize, no, it can't really be a style because, first of all, it's not something you can just conjure up on demand. Um and it takes, and it's associated with lots of different styles. Or if you think about glamorous vacation uh, resorts or glamorous photos, you know, some of them are at the beach and some of them are in the mountains, and it's all very different. So, what is glamour? And I came to the conclusion that glamour is like humor. It's a form of communication where there's an audience and there's an object, and we recognize glamour the same way we recognize humor. Uh, is by the audience's emotional reaction. In the case of humor, you know, it's laughter, amusement. In the case of glamour, it's this pang of longing and projection. If only life could be like that. If only I could be there. If only I could be with them. If only I could be like her or him. Uh, if only I could have that dress or wear that, uh, uh, wear those shoes or drive that car or that sort of thing. Does that mean that glamour represents different things for different people? That, Like humor in that respect, it isn't necessarily universal, that it's really a function of what we bring to the perception of glamour. Absolutely. So the phenomenon of glamour, I think, is universal in the same way that the phenomenon of humor Mm -hmm. is universal. But what we find glamorous, just like what we find humorous, varies with personality, it, it varies with you know what we want, what we what we're discontent with in our lives, what what our ideals are, and it also varies with the cultural moment. Uh, so that things that are widely regarded as glamorous in one cultural instance can completely lose their glamour as the culture changes. 
And yet you make the point that there are, though, essential elements in all forms of glamour. Right. So one of the things that I do in the book, sort of the core middle of the book, is delving into what I identify as the three essential elements of glamour. The first is a promise of escape and transformation. Uh, take glamour sort of takes your inchoate broader desires could be a desire for recognition for love for friendship any kind many different types of desires for comfort uh, and it focuses them on some object uh, that could be a person a place an idea uh, and it and you have the sense that if I could be transformed or if I could escape from my current environment to that, I could achieve these ideals. It's, it's a feeling, not a conscious thought necessarily. So the first is the element is the promise of escape and transformation. The second element is grace. Glamour hides difficulties, distractions, costs, all the things that might take us out of the the glamorous moment. And glamour always contains this element of illusion. The word originally meant a literal magic spell that meant where people would see things different from what was there. And as it became more metaphorical, it it still contained this element of magic and illusion. And what I identify as the illusion is not the promise of escape and transformation. The, The illusion is in the grace that things, glamour makes things look easier than they actually will be, and it takes away the boring parts, the difficulties, the costs. And then the third element is mystery. We always associate mystery with glamour. And uh, the way I describe it is glamour is neither opaque nor transparent. It's translucent. It lets us see just enough to draw us in. Mystery is intriguing. Enhances projection and also uh, to help hide, help with the grace, to hide, help hide difficulties. Is there something inherent, though, in the grace aspect of it that becomes antithetical to achievement of what one might want and desire as a result of seeing glamour? This idea that it is easy. It's one thing to say, never let them see you sweat but it's another not to put in the proverbial 10,000 hours. And and there seems to be this interesting dichotomy there. Right. Well, we use glamour in, in sort of two basic ways. One is we just enjoy glamour. I mean, you a lot of a lot of glamour is just a momentary sort of mental recreation, a, 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 a fantasy that you don't Act on uh, you. You know you enjoy seeing a, a picture or a scene or thinking about a setting in a movie or a, or a book or something, and it's a momentary escape. And there, that grace is part of the enjoyment, but it doesn't matter sort of in a real world sense. The other thing we do with glamour is we act on it sometimes, and that can be anything from. You know, seeing a glamorous pair of shoes in the store in an ad and actually buying it in you know, sort of a commercial action to deciding to pursue a certain career because you saw, you know, you, you watch CSI and you got a glamorous idea of what it was like to be a forensic scientist. When that happens, then 
it starts to be real life. And so the glamour can only be a guide, not a destination. You have to start editing back in those missing parts. You use the example of Oprah with respect to Mary Tyler Moore. Right. That's Yeah, that's a wonderful example. Uh, one of the things that happens is sometimes things that are not intended to be glamorous become glamorous in the audience's eyes. And and in the case of Oprah, as when she was a teenager in very difficult circumstances, uh, she loved the Mary Tyler Moore show. And the Mary Tyler Moore show, as those of us who remember it, uh, was a sitcom, first of all, which is not a glamorous medium, and it was about embarrassing situations. Um, but she abstracted away from that and saw the you know, the camaraderie and the interesting workplace and she wanted to she wanted to live where Mary lived and she wanted a boss like Mr. Grant and all all of this thing. And that led her to pursue a career in T V news. And she actually wasn't terribly successful in T V news. She had a good start, but then she kind of floundered. And it was only when she then moved from sort of literally emulating Mary and being a reporter to somebody had the bright idea to put her on a talk show uh, where she really found her metier so that the glamour of that show was very important in shaping her life, pointing her in a direction. But then in order for it really to work for her, she had to adapt uh, to to who she really was, and she was not a fictional character. (laughs) She was a real person uh, who was better in a slightly different medium. Another interesting and confusing example of this that you talk about is Naomi Wolf's piece on Angelina Jolie. Yes, in 2009, um, Naomi Wolf wrote a long feature for Harper's Bazaar about Angelina Jolie, and it was not the typical you know, typical celebrity profile author gets, you know, an hour with a celebrity and writes something about what they had for lunch and what a great person they are. And this was very different. This was all the meanings that uh, Naomi Wolf saw in Angelina Jolie, uh, how she represented sort of having it all and, you know, and it when you read it, you see all the different things, all the longings that Naomi Wolf has, many of which are expressed in different ways in her specific books, uh, you know, to have, to become, uh, to, to be effortlessly beautiful. Uh, you know, she assumes that Angelina Jolie <laughs> is effortlessly beautiful. We don't know because we don't, we're not, not privy to her behind the scenes work to, to become a mother without difficulty, uh, to participate in high-level policy debates. All of these things are parts of her work. And the most remarkable passage, which was much commented on and actually mocked at the time, but uh, is about uh, Angelina Jolie learning to fly a private plane. Mm-hmm. And she talks about, Wolf talks about that as, you know, a new form of single mother chic. And I found that interesting in a couple ways. First of all, Flying and the idea of the aviator are very traditionally glamorous images, particularly in the early 20th century. And so Naomi Wolf takes this glamorous icon of the aviator and she turns it into something that serves her personal emotional purposes, which is as she's a single mother, she projects it onto a a single mother. 
And that's also interesting because the great uh, aviatrix, female aviator, uh, glamorous icon is Amelia Earhart, who was married and had no children, <laughs> so was the opposite of a single mother. So she's found you know, a new archetype that serves her own emotional purposes. And it's also interesting because she finds all these different things in Angelina Jolie, and she leaves out other things that are part of her movie star glamour, and the main one being that she leaves out her 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 image as a, a, a man's woman and an action star and sort of this butt-kicking kind of uh, person. Uh, many of the roles she plays are these action roles, including in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, where she played opposite Brad Pitt. Um, so that those are not things that serve this particular audience of, of Naomi Wolf. Uh, her emotional needs but they serve other people's, and that's part of the reason that Angelina Jolie can be a glamorous star is that she can represent so many different things to so many different people. It really is, and in some ways, it, with respect to place, California as a place embodies this, this sense of the dream teaching the dreamer how to live. Yeah, and I also have a, a I have, the way the book is structured is it has these theoretical chapters, which bring together lots of examples, like, say, a chapter on mystery. And then it also has, at the end of each chapter, mm-hmm. sort of sidebars on specific ar- glamorous archetypes, like the aviator or like smoking in the first right. chapter. And one of them is about California and all the different things that California has meant to people over the years and the glamour of California, you know, sort of, which is a glamour from a distance. And it starts with a story uh, about um, an architect in the post-World uh, War One period in Europe who was dying to get out of Europe and get to some place that was less demoralized where there um, people were mentally footloose and also where he could escape the winter. And uh, he, he, it was Richard Neutra who wound up, in fact, coming to California after seeing a poster in a travel uh, office that said, California is calling. <laughs> uh, and it called him, and then he came to California, and he designed many of the modern homes that became iconic symbols of the California good life, particularly through the lens of Julius Shulman, the great architectural photographer. Um, and California does, it, it draws people to it with certain ideas. And and of course, the great story that people who don't like California tell is the story of the disillusioned migrant, the person with this ridiculous show business dreams who comes to Hollywood and ends up sleeping on the street or you know, have, being disappointed. And those are very much part of the sort of the glamour story of California as well, the dark side of it. But there are plenty of people who, in one way or another, do realize themselves because of following that, turning that glamour into something real. And along the way, of course, you have to incorporate back into it all the things that get left out of the beautiful picture. It's not going to be effortless, but it can be very rewarding. The other aspect is the things that glamour is not. It's not glitz, as you talk about, and it's not charisma, that there's a significant difference. 
Right. So one thing I do in the book is talk about is, is talk about things that are similar to but different from glamour. And one of the ones that people are most interested in, judging from interviews <laughs> is, and Q and A and Q and A's after lectures, is the distinction between glamour and charisma because they're often con- confused with each other. Um, the Glamour, as we've discussed, is something that arises from the audience's response to something. And so the meaning is something that the audience brings to uh, to it. it. You know, you might try to create glamour in the same way that people write jokes for comedians and try to create humor, but it depends on the audience's response. Charisma is a personal quality like intelligence that's kind of, you kind of, it, first of all, a car can't be charismatic. A car can be glamorous. A city can't be charismatic. A city can be glamorous. It's 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 a per it's it's a quality of a person, not of the audience. So it it has to be animate, and the person kind of owns that charisma. It's this it's this personal quality that draws people to the charismatic person. They want to please that person. They want to enlist in that person's cause. It's this, it's, and there are different definitions of charisma. You know, it originally had a religious connotation. Today we think of it as more like a stage presence. But all of those definitions and, and meanings of charisma have this sense of leadership and the charismatic person drawing people to themselves. So the meaning is whatever the charismatic person, what their cause is, what they're trying to enlist you in. And so, it you know, there are pretty much any successful politician or actor or teacher or preacher has a certain level of charisma. Glamour is more difficult to maintain in the public eye because it requires distance and mystery. So one of the things I talk about in the book is the difference between the glamorous Barack Obama, particularly in, in, in as the early in his early right. canvassy in 2008, uh, versus the charismatic Bill Clinton. So Bill Clinton, you know, we know way too much about Bill Clinton for him to be <laughs> glamorous. I mean, you know, he, there's no mystery with Bill Clinton. He is like in your face, you know, he, but he does pull people in. And the thing about charisma is that particularly, they're both assets for in a campaign, but, but glamour is really only an asset in the campaign. When you actually get in office and you have to make decisions, uh, then some of the things that some of your supporters projected onto you when they were, you know, when you were the embodiment of their hopes and dreams are going to turn out not to be true, and they're going to be disillusioned. Where it, uh, so it becomes more difficult to govern than it, than if you have loads of charisma, you, you can sell whatever the latest thing is. You can uh, charisma is better for sort of leading people. There are some people that have both, and those are the interesting cases. Yes, and those are those are unusual, and they are and they are rare. And the the two the, the three that I give examples of I don't really develop it in detail. And uh, one is Steve Jobs, who had uh, loads of charisma, and particularly as he went on and became more and more successful, also developed a lot of glamour around him. Uh, another is Ronald Reagan, who was so self-contained that even though he was a successful 
politician. Um, he had a uh, he had an authorized biographer, Edmund uh, Mar- Morris, who was following him around during his White House years with the idea that he he had written some very successful acclaimed biographies of Theodore Roosevelt. And the idea was, you know, when Reagan got out of office, he would write a biography of Reagan. He had access to all the papers, uh, got to be in the meetings. But Reagan was so self-contained and mysterious that his own biographer ended up writing this weird biography where he created this sort of fictional persona because he couldn't ever penetrate the mystery of who this guy really was, which is interesting. And then the third example that I use, and again, I don't develop it at length, is Nelson Mandela. I think what happened with Mandela is that he was a tremendously charismatic figure, but because he went to prison for all those years, and was out of the public eye and became almost a mythic figure, he developed this kind of mystery that had he been able to stay in public life, he wouldn't probably have developed. And so he was able to be a glamorous figure as well. In that sense, the same applies to JFK and Camelot. Well, that's the other thing. The uh, Many, many, going back to the discussion of glamour versus charisma, many, many glamorous figures die young because dying is a really good way to maintain the glamour. <laughs> you know, there's always that sense of what might have been. Uh, and also, of course, the youth and whatever might be, uh, uh, might have been accomplished up to that point is sort of preserved in amber. You know, if JFK were alive today, I think he'd be 96 something like that, but in our minds, he's forever this useful figure, and there's always this sense of whatever I want, want, and we saw a lot of this around the assassination anniversary, you know, whatever policies I would have liked JFK to pursue, uh, he would have pursued those policies. <laughs> uh, you know, he would have never gotten us into, you know, escalating in Vietnam. Oh, he was a Cold War hawk. I mean, you find people who imagine because they can project onto him whatever uh, they want. Whereas with charisma, when the person dies, the charisma is gone. I mean, the best you could do is have maybe a, a video recording and get some of it. But, you know, as people who were charismatic recede in memory, um, we lose the sense of why that person was so compelling. We we see what they've done in life, but you know what what they might have accomplished, what legacies they might have left. But we don't really understand what it was that drew people to them because that's gone. Whereas with glamour, it's in the audience's mind, and if the person dies, particularly if they die young, the glamour can be maintained. Given those key elements of glamour, of transformation, of mystery, of grace, what impact has our cynical and ironic age today had on how we perceive glamour and how it endures? Really good question. I think it's really amazing that there's anything glamorous because we have so many um, values and habits that cut against it. Um, and some of those are very important values, honesty, transparency, frankness. Um, other ones are, you know, things like informality or, you know, the idea of the privileging the natural versus the artificial or, or even being very overt about sexuality. Um, and those sorts of things cut against glamour. And yet we have this desire 
for glamour in the same way that we have a desire for humor. It's something we enjoy and sort of something that our psychology keeps recreating. And so what we do is we sort of find new versions of it. But one thing I write about in the last chapter is I think particularly in the commercial world where people are trying to manufacture glamour for, you know, to sell you things, um, people have tried to come up with what I call wised up glamour, which sort of lets you have your cake and eat it too. So you enjoy the glamour, but you laugh at it at the same time. Um, and the, the sort of extreme mass version of, of this is the old spice man. You know, he really is a very handsome buff guy on a white horse and you get to have all that. But it's also laughing at the idea, all these sort of glamorous cliches at the same time. And then there are more uh, subtle and sophisticated ones that are used in, in commercials uh, and in advertising. Um, there are also versions of it uh, in things like uh, superhero comics. There's a, a, a guy who writes about them, talks about the idea of utopian parody, how a lot of these comics are written in such a way that the person who's enjoying the fantasy uh, and the glamour of the characters can also simultaneously laugh at them and sort of distance himself or herself from it uh, a little bit to sort of say, you know, I, it's a form of self-protection. I mean, you also see the same thing in a lot of drag performances. There's a lot of this admitting that you find something glamorous, it makes you vulnerable. It makes you, it acknowledges sort of something important about yourself, what you find missing in your life, what you'd like to be. And that's something that's that's difficult, uh, both culturally and personally. Um, So, it's in you know in a moment like the you know the 1930s people watching the escapist movies is sort of less vulnerable to say well yes i would like to have a, an easy life of of love and riches uh, as opposed to this difficult life of the depression but in our society sort of acknowledging what you find glamorous is a little riskier and, and um but that doesn't mean glamour doesn't exist it, you know i have the book is full of examples, including lots of contemporary ones of things that people find glamorous. Is there a difference? Glamour is certainly always changing, and you talk about that. But is there a difference today in that we find something that's glamorous and we enjoy building it up and making it glamorous so that we can have the opportunity to tear it down? <laughs> well, I don't. Uh, you know, first of all, the we's are a little different sometimes there. The people who are finding it glamorous may not be the same people who are tearing it down. But there's also, there, there's another thing that goes on is when we find something glamorous and we're drawn to it, whether it's a person or a place, we often want to know more about it. So we, you know, we keep looking. We keep looking. Maybe we even act on it and um, and it becomes part of our life. And experience tends to dispel the grace and mystery so that um, glamour has this sort of self-destroying quality to some degree um, because even when you, well, let's say you have a glamorous idea of a certain job and you actually pursue that career and you actually get that job, you get your dream job, and and you like your dream job. It's not like a horrible story of disillusionment and misery. But then it's just your job and you 
you you see the good parts of it and the bad parts of it, and it's not glamorous anymore. And so that to the degree that we act on glamour, it has this kind of paradoxical, destructive quality. Um, And then the same thing happens with sort of glamorous people. Um, They're often their fans want to know more and more and more, and that then leads them to discover bad things or or just ordinary things. They don't necessarily have to be terrible things. Or alternatively, there are people who don't, you know, don't find those individuals glamorous or don't like them and are trying to reveal the underside of sort of the, it's kind of like an adversarial system in those cases. And, that can be disillusioning, or it can create a defense. That, that That's a little harder to say exactly how it plays out. And finally, is some level of discontent an essential element of glamour as well? Yes. Uh, the glamour is, not only do you have to have a level of discontent, you have to be willing to admit at least emotionally, maybe not rationally, but you have to acknowledge that discontent. And you also have to be sort of personally and culturally permitted to imagine some alternative to whatever is being making you discontent. And this goes to the question I address in uh, one of the chapters about history, which is sort of how old is glamour? And one of the things that I say is in in sort of pre-modern societies before the rise of large commercial cities, there were many fewer forms of glamour. It's not that glamour didn't exist, but there were many fewer potential outlets for them, and they tended to be concentrated in sort of three realms. One is martial glamour, the glamour of battle, the glamour of, you know, being a soldier, uh, the glamour of, you know, military heroes. Uh, the second is, the, which is sort of masculine, the second is the sort of glamour of the seductive female beauty. And the third is religious glamour, which is uh, a glamour that we tend not to realize as much today because we have a more secular society and even our people who are religious tend to be, it tends to be less about glamour, but you know the glamour of the religious life, the glamour of the of the next world, um, picturing yourself in different, better circumstances is essential to glamour. And in a world where, say, social mobility is not an option, um, you are more likely to channel that into, uh, say, a sense of an afterlife or a sense of of, of religious glamour. It could be religious figures becoming glamorous. Uh, not God. God is too powerful to be glamorous. But, but you know, it could be saints or, or people who are li- living exemplary religious lives. Uh, so you do have to have discontent and you have to have some sort of way of channeling that discontent into an idea of a different, better life. Virginia Pastrell, the book is The Power of Glamour, Longing and the Art of Visual Persuasion. Virginia, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.